stories don't define you. How you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker at Elkins Consulting. In my work with coaching clients, I guide people to improve their communication using storytelling as the foundation of our work together. What I've realized over years of coaching and podcasting is that the majority of people don't realize the impact of the stories they share on their internal messages and on the people they're sharing them with. What really lights me up is guiding executives and uncovering the stories in their lives that are meaningful. The stories that, when shared with the right audience in the right way, connect, inspire, and motivate. Here's what a former client had to say about our work together. As a leader of leaders, I struggle with how and when to use my stories to emphasize the points my audience is looking for. It's a delicate balance between sounding like I'm bragging and delivering a message that needs to be heard. Sarah's approach to storytelling clears that obstacle so that you can deliver a clear and concise message using your stories to emphasize your points. It's truly amazing when it all comes together. Greg McDonough, Blackburn Capital Advisors and President of the Entrepreneurs' Organization of Washington, D.C. Visit elkinsconsulting.com to learn more about working with me. Well, today is a special day. I get to interview my friend Jeff Furman on the podcast, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Well. We've been connected on LinkedIn for years and years, and it is just such a pleasure to finally get to see him face-to-face, even though our listeners don't get to see a video, uh, but to hear his voice and hear his story. So, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, this is like I already know you pretty well from many podcasts and many of your LinkedIn posts, and I've interacted with some of your really good questions that you give challenges to your audience. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's been my pleasure because I've seen a lot of the content that you've been posting over the years, and I love the way that you present the information that you're sharing when you're teaching. So can you tell our listeners just a, a little bit about what you do and why it lights you up? Yeah, well, I love helping people. And I've always been a natural teacher. My first job, even in high school, I was tutoring algebra to other students. There was a board of education program. So, uh, but anyway, then I was a project manager for many years in IT, lots of really good challenges. And we did a lot of innovative projects. We had a lot of autonomy. So I was in charge of looking at new products for a big brokerage in New York. So I was exploring cool software for many years and bringing in the best of breed products, but I always was a teacher kind of guy and I would do classes for the, even for the uh, the developers in the brokerage firm, I would do classes to help them learn the software so they would use it and wouldn't just be shelfware. So many years later, I got good advice to get my PMP and then I became really a PMP evangelist. A lot of the PMP project management professional is from PMI, Project Management Institute. Uh, a lot of it rang true for me and it was very much in sync with what I had been doing as a manager. So I started sharing PMP and I became a PMP instructor. And I love it because it, it helped me a lot. As soon as I got my PMP, someone wanted me to teach PMP. It's still that way today. There's a lot of opportunity. And then people asked me to write a book, which uh, you know I knew a lot already, but because I had the PMP, that's why they asked me to write the book. So even in my own story where I had a lot of experience, the PMP helped me a lot. So I've been teaching PMP largely 
uh, since 2007, uh, the last 10 years for NYU in New York City, and the last 11 years overlapping for the U.S. Army. And I love teaching the Army wow. especially because it makes such a huge difference for the soldiers. You know, people think of soldiers as just being soldiers, but there are many project managers in the U.S. Army. They build roads and bridges and uh, offices and computer networks all over the world, uh, sometimes with bullets flying over their head, but that's, so they're doing everything like here in New York, except with the challenge of being in a tough place, like right. many of my students from Iraq and right. Afghanistan. So I love helping the army people, especially, uh, it helps them so much to get certified. Uh, when they get out of the army, then they're a certified project manager, they're going to do great in their private life after when they become a civilian. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And I, I love that you're doing that, partly because I have had a lot of experience recently in the last few years with um, others that are guiding uh, former military veterans to apply what they learned there in the private sector after they leave the military service. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. As a matter of fact, one of, one of my really interesting interviews was a guy named David Ammerland, who oh, yeah. wrote a book called The Sniper Mind. And he <laughs> oh, had yeah. these incredible conversations with former snipers and current snipers. Oh. And he was kind of guiding them to understand how what they've learned in that area can yeah. be applied to the boardroom. So mm. <laughs> I think a lot of us have a hard time once we get so inundated or invested in one particular area we don't realize how much of what we learned can be applied to other areas. So yeah, yeah. I, I love that you're doing that work. Thank you for doing that work. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, it, it helps the soldiers so much and they keep in touch mm -hmm. with me. Some of them, some of them are now millionaires. I, they, they call me up to have brunch. Like they find out I'm teaching in a city. Like I taught a course in uh, Augusta. I got a call from a student who took my class in Texas, but he was in Augusta and we're now on Facebook. So he says, Oh, let's, he invited me to brunch in Augusta. I didn't have any idea he was there, but he started his own company sort of as he was finishing the military service. And another one of them did that too. He started his own real estate company in El Paso. In The, the army tells you this is your last year usually. So right, some right. of these guys, they're very proactive to learn the PMP. And I didn't even know they were doing this, but they're now they're developing their own business and they hit the ground the minute they're out of the army, they have a pretty much up and running business, which I wouldn't, I didn't even know they were doing it, but these are two of my best students who've done great after after I saw them. Many of them are still in the yeah. army, and many. Oh, that's of them, impact, Jeff. Well, it's Big very impact. exciting. Yeah, it's quite it exciting, I, and I, I keep in touch with quite a lot of them in LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. So um, I, let's go backward a little bit because yeah. um, I really want to ask you the question that I ask all my guests because uh, you mentioned your answer to me in an email and I'm, I'm excited to dig into it a little yeah. bit. So I always ask my guests to share something about themselves that most people probably don't know about them, something that's not on their LinkedIn profile or on their bio or in their resume. And um, you shared something that we have in common. So would you mind sharing that with the, with our listeners? Yeah, I have always had a very big love of music and growing up in the New York City area, you see some amazing things, uh, great concerts, you know, really amazing. So for many years, I was working for this brokerage that I mentioned, 
it was Prudential Securities in downtown New York. And after work, I would go to, I had a pick of great shows to go to, and I had a lot of energy. I would, I would work all day on computers, then I would run up to Greenwich Village, then I would go to like some of these famous places, Folk City and the Bottom Line and the Bitter End, all of these classic places. And I, and I would love the music so much that I, and I always had a writing bug. So later I wrote my books and everything in project management, but I started writing for Computer World about software and that gave me a credential and then i called up a, a, a an editor at a, a newspaper in new jersey the bergen record and i asked him if i could write interviews about songwriters i had one really good idea at the time and he was very excited it was really just a lucky accident but i was good at that kind of phone call so mm -hmm. i had i was published in computer world which people know about anyway so the next thing i know i'm uh, spending quite a lot of time going to concerts picking my favorite songwriters that i want to help and share their music with the world so i got to be you know really helping them out and it's it's really fun to interview singer songwriters so mm -hmm. i interviewed the people from the roaches and lucy kaplansky and uh, maybe you know eliza gilkison or uh, or tom russell from the out on the west coast but anyway i would write interviews i would interview them and write articles and get pictures and publish them in this newspaper and then i branched into this pretty good one called performing songwriter magazine uh it used to be really a biggie in the world anyway so that is a great passion for me you know it's so much fun to ask a songwriter secrets behind the song and normally mm -hmm. they wouldn't answer you if you asked them but if you're right if you're writing an article that they love to hear that's when they love that question and right. i'm so curious i hear you talk about curiosity a lot in your podcast like with active listening so i'm super curious about a, a song did it change or how did it's just the most mm -hmm. interesting thing to me so that was a very satisfying hobby for many years i did that that's so cool. And it fed you because yeah. during the day you weren't being completely fed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, exactly. you're, you were being drained in some ways. And so you were yeah. able to re-energize by listening yeah. to music. So um, it, some of the names that you mentioned, I, I know that quite a few of them are kind of American folk yeah. style. Yeah. Um, is that generally what you were listening to at the time? Is it something yeah. that you continue to yeah. love? I was very lucky. I always loved folk music kind of best. And even now there's a revival. Uh, Joni Mitchell had a five page article about her in the mm -hmm. times just this weekend in the New York Sunday times. This happened to always be my favorite music. Joni Mitchell, John Baez, Bob Dylan, Tim, uh, Tim Harden, all these people. So many of them were right in my backyard. I lived in Greenwich village also before that. So I, I saw wow. all of these great shows. Also someone named Jack Hardy who passed away, but he was a folk singer and songwriter. He started a group called fast folk and a funny name. And he, he would have pasta at his apartment in Greenwich village where all of these people would come over and it was a songwriter swap. And it was really good people like Suzanne Vega, lots of people who got pretty famous, but right. they started, they started there. He gave them their start and he was this kind of generous guy. He would host, make this giant bowl of pasta. I was invited once or twice to his house and all these songwriters would go around the room doing a songwriter swap. And uh, so cool. <laughs> it was really neat people, really good people, uh, many that you've he heard of at this point. And uh, um, so Suzanne Vega had that song, Tom's Diner, do you know, mm -hmm. which is the diner? Yeah, well, I, I actually got to see her perform yeah. once oh, really? here in Helena, Montana at a small really? 
um, auditorium called the Myrna Loy Center for the yeah. Performing Arts. That oh, really? same summer, I got to yeah. see Ricky Lee Jones perform. Ooh, wow, wow. <laughs> yeah, I think awesome. Suzanne awesome. Vega's, um, the song that most of our listeners would recognize would be um, the um, the one about the girl that was abused, but I'm forgetting the name. Is that the Luca song? Yes, Luca? my name yeah. is Luca. Luca, yeah. And then she yeah. had a... And then she did a song called Tom's Diner, which became the diner that was used in Seinfeld. Did you know it's still in New right. York? So you yes. can go see Tom's Diner and it's in the show. But she wrote they got the idea for the diner name from her song, Tom's Diner. That's so cool. That's so, so cool. So tell yeah. me, Jeff, um, was music a part of your growing up? Did you have it in your household? Were there musicians? You know, I just, uh, I loved, I was a little kid with a transistor radio listening to the British invasion. I can, I remember like, I was like five, I've got, you know, the Dave Clark five and the Beatles and the Herman's Hermits and all of these fantastic people, especially the British invasion and rock and roll was so amazing in the Rolling Stones. And then uh, yeah. I always loved music so much. And then I would, we, I lived on Staten Island where I would hop into New York City just in a few minutes. The ferry is a 20 minute ferry right now into Manhattan, uh, still there. So uh, right. I always loved it a lot. And it was something I knew was so fantastic, you know, such a great opportunity. And That's then, so cool. Well, I was just thinking that I, I love that you mentioned the revival of American folk because yeah. uh, I've been listening to a bit of that. I don't, I'm not a big fan of bluegrass music or country yeah. music, the, the newer country Western stuff. Yeah. But mm -hmm. what I really do like is so many local singer songwriters here in Montana. There's mm. a guy named Tom Catmull that just oh, yeah? does great music. Travis Yost. These are guys out of Missoula, Montana, oh, really? um, John Floridas. These are all musicians that wander around Montana and play at house concerts and they yeah. do. Um, and, and they, I love that we get to hear these things because there was a time when you really didn't hear music like that because everyone was so focused on radios and big names and yeah, yeah. just, didn't hear about these musicians until they were big and most of them never got that big. So yeah, yeah. I love, I love this idea of the revival and um, for our listeners, I will have a few links to some of the um, music that Jeff and I are talking about some of the singer songwriters. So if you go to the blog post at elkinsconsulting.com for this podcast, um, I'll make sure that we have a few names and links so that if you're curious, <laughs> you can check out some of these singer songwriters <laughs> performances. <laughs> So let's um, let's get to the meat of this. The whole yeah. reason I wanted to reach out to you was because um, we had uh, we had exchanged a few notes, comments on a, an article that somebody shared about the Holocaust, and it was particularly um, interesting to me. It was it was all based on the the Bon Maman um, French yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. jam, right? Yeah, yeah. The the jam or jelly that they have at Safeway and I've always loved that because it's so it's all fruit and yeah. there was something about it. I always just really liked that jam. And then somebody posted about it having been made in a town, a village in France that protected the Jews when the, when they were supposed to be pulled away and, and murdered. Yeah. And you mentioned that you are the child of Holocaust survivors. Yeah. Um, and as much as I am um, intrigued by the stories of your parents, 
what is really interesting to me lately is this idea of generational PTSD, mm. um, the experiences we have as children of parents who had these experiences before we were born. And it's, um, it's been really interesting. I talked to Raj Kumari Niyogi a couple, like over a year ago on this topic. And she sent me on a, a rabbit hole experience oh, really? yeah. of looking into a lot of research that's been done on the fact that children um, who were, their, their mother was pregnant with them during Trump, a traumatic event like Superstorm Sandy or, or yeah. any mm. of like 9-11, mm. um, that those babies are born with a higher natural level of cortisol, the stress hormone. Mm. Babies who are born of parents who were not in that kind of an experience, mm. a traumatic mm. event. So um, you mentioned a few of the things that that had big impact on you based on your parents' behavior. And I'd love to kind of dig into that because it relates back to the first part of our conversation when we talked about what you do and being a natural born teacher mm. and your um, particular affection in your affiliation with the army. So can you share with our listeners the story about why you have that particular affection for um, our, our armed forces? Yeah. So um, it was probably the most significant thing in my childhood that both of my parents were Holocaust survivors directly and all their family, many were killed. Uh, they were two of the few that survived. And in fact, so the, the U.S. Army literally rescued my mother from a concentration camp. So this is very powerful. You hear this when you're a little kid and it stays with you pretty big your whole life. So I have always, so many years later, I had the pleasure of being asked to teach for the army. And uh, I thought, you know, this is a great way to give back. I teach a lot, but I'm, I'd rather teach for the army almost than anyone else because I'm helping. It's like a giving back. Uh, so my mother was in a concentration camp. And when the war ended or toward the end, the U.S. Army was right there, literally taking her out where she might have been close to death already. You know, many of the people who were in the camps died in the camps, even if they weren't murdered, they were underfed they were mistreated so even in the camps it was pretty you were still pretty likely to die even if you were not killed right away uh and so and meanwhile my father was also his family he was pulled away from his family literally they were fleeing poland and the Russians were invading at the same time as the Germans. Poland was right in the middle. They took my father, like we need, literally into the Russian army. He never saw his family again, ever. He didn't see his, he was right with his parents, never saw them again. And he thought everyone was still alive when he, there was no cell phones, there was no anything. He gets out of the Russian army, there's nobody left. So anyway, uh, giving back to the army is a, is really gratifying for me. So uh, and then I and I think part of the idea of liking to help people so much and be a teacher, I think that comes especially from my mother's side. She had quite a lot of empathy. In fact, I used to call her the empath, like from Star Trek, the old Star oh, Trek. Yeah. <laughs> then they had another empath later in the movies. But anyway, she right. liked her. she liked that idea. But it was she's really was filled with empathy. Uh, she became, after the kids were grown, she became a crafts therapist. And it was quite amazing. She just came up with this sort of out of the blue sky. Like she didn't go to school for that, but she knitted and crocheted. 
and she would help the people in the halfway houses on Staten Island quite a lot. She said uh, they used to tell her that she helped them more than the psychologists. Everyone likes to make fun of psychologists. So right. anyway, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, doing something and making something and positive is very helpful to people's psyche, right? So, Do you remember yeah. her telling stories about that, about certain ex-cons that she had worked with? Uh, you mean in the in the halfway house? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, she would tell me uh, people are so upset and, you know, nothing is helping them. Uh, she didn't go into much about their lives, but she would talk about the impact she was making and how she liked going in there every day and how she helped them every day uh, and how, you know, something like crocheting, people think I don't know how to do this, but she was able, very patient, very empathetic. And uh, she would teach someone to crochet who couldn't do it before. It's kind of a really big thing when suddenly they can do this. And it's such Mm -hmm. a gratifying thing to make something like that. Right. And it's just a small piece of that confidence puzzle. If I can do this, yeah. maybe I can do this yeah. too. Yeah. Or it's that. Really, yeah. It's like a self-therapy. Yeah. And she, but she just sort of found her way into that. Uh, we were surprised. Like she came to America, couldn't speak a word of English, didn't finish her, co- her high school because of the war, but she got her high school degree. And then she got a college degree right on Staten Island, uh, the college of wow. Staten Island. So she what was, was her very, degree in? Uh, I actually don't remember the degree, but it was, uh, but just a general degree, but it gave being having a college degree. I remember she took courses like English literature. uh, And um, so Staten Island College is still right there. And, uh, uh, and I, Actually, she used to drive me to work at, I was a summer camp counselor in the summers of my college years, and then she uh-huh. would go on to her job, and then she would pick me up back where I was a counselor at the summer camp. So uh, wow. we were, the summer camp was near where her where the uh, hospital was that she was working. So I got to bond with her that way. So how long was that drive? Uh, not that long. Staten Island has some beautiful woods. People think of it as not so nice, but those camps are still there. There's a Boy Scout camp, a Girl Scout camp. There's Camp Kaufman. They call it the Green Belt. So there's still these beautiful woods on Staten Island, not far from uh, the hospital that she works and not far from uh, really some It's called Toad Hill is a beautiful area. So there's quite a so lot of woods. I'm, I am immediately kind of transported into this yeah. park. Yeah, it's only like maybe 25 minute drive. So we would drive in the morning. She would take me to the camp. The little nice kids would be waiting to see me. They would be like standing Uh with their mommies and dads, you know. Because of your natural teaching ability. Yeah, yeah, that was my second job. Like, Uh and I liked it a lot. Like, I loved helping the little kids. I felt the little one girl didn't have a father. So I gave special attention to her. Like, it was that was Uh pretty fun, actually. Uh, Really gratifying also. Do you think your mom noticed did your mom ever did. say anything yeah. when you would be I, I, there and they'd be waiting for you? Uh, once or twice, I introduced her. Like there were these two little kids that hung around together. And uh-huh. one of them said, is that your mom? And they wanted to meet her. So that was, I remember that pretty vividly. So uh, uh-huh. yeah, she she would have fit in at the camp too, actually. But anyway, she was working with adults uh, who had a rough time and they were in the halfway house. But right. it was only- So on the way home, yeah. you had another 25 minutes alone with her. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty awesome. It just seems like you have you have this whole memory popping into your head of sitting in the car with your mom. Oh yeah, it was pretty great actually. Every every morning through the summer, in between my college, uh, you know, semesters, you know. Mm-hmm. 
I'm just, um, I'm feeling that maybe it's resonating because there was a time when I dropped out of college for a little while because I just couldn't pay the rent and was too broke to eat. So I remember moving back home for a little while, which was awful for me because I was fiercely independent. But my dad got me a job in the plant, the he was a printer and publisher mm. and he got me a, a hand bindery job in the plant um, so that I could make an income. And it was an hour drive each way. It was from Colorado oh, yeah. mm. Springs to Denver. And we'd yeah. have to leave really early in the morning, which was yeah. never my thing. Yeah, but yeah. I have, as you were telling that story, I have these vivid memories popping into my head of getting in the car with my dad, having our go cups of coffee and listening to NPR on the way into the plant <laughs> And just having that quiet time with him and then on the way back talking about our days. And um, I don't think as young adults, we have a lot of opportunities like that with our parents. So it seems to me that as you're thinking about it, there there are some precious moments that are coming back into your memory as a result of thinking about that time. You know, since you mentioned that, um, I was a middle child and I kind of never got enough attention in a way as is famous for middle children. But a couple Mm -hmm. of my most vivid memories of were when my mother took me only, she took just me to the movies one time. And we saw, twice she did that. Once was a movie called My Side of the Mountain. It was a story of a little kid in the woods. But anyway, that was like uh, really special to me to have a whole day just me and my mother. It was like a rare opportunity that I really appreciated, and it stuck with me uh, as a long memory all these years. That's so awesome. And as a mom, that's especially meaningful to me because I, yeah. I think well, I, I'm, I did that with my boys. It makes me yeah. wonder what they will take mm-hmm. from that. And, yeah. and I remember only once do I remember this. Maybe my mom did it more than once, but I remember her coming to my school one time in elementary school. I must have been in third grade or something. And I had a little, I have a, a younger sister who's five years younger than I am and oh. my older brother. So I'm the middle child as yeah. well. Oh, really? Oh, and that's funny. As you were saying that about your mom taking you to the movies, I remember this one time when my mom came to my school and just took me out to lunch. And mm. she said, I just missed my Sarah. Oh. And I, I have, <laughs> and that was so many years ago. And then she, she brought me back to school and I finished my day and took the bus back home with my brother. And, but, um, you mentioned in one of our conversations by email that she was also fiercely protective of you likely because of her experience in the Holocaust. Mm. So um, do you ever remember something in that time that just comes back to your memory vividly, a story of, of when she was overprotective that you knew it was overprotective and not a reasonable amount of protection. This was a flaw in her from her background that she she decided that she had such a, a rough time. Her mother and father were killed by the Nazis. Her brother, two brothers and her only sister were killed by the Nazis. So both she and my father wanted to protect us from any trouble. So my father's way was to tell us how rotten the Nazis were and beware of everybody and don't talk to the neighbors. My father was more that way about it, but my mother was more hands-on, like don't play football, you'll get hurt. Don't, don't, don't ride your bike this on the, on the main road, you'll get hurt. So the thing is, it didn't convince me not to do anything. It only, it probably made me more wild because it would be, you could say annoying that <laughs> she's inhibiting me or inhibiting my enjoyment of all these things. So even though she never stopped me pretty much from doing anything, but it, she never stopped trying. So a little bit like, you know, she had a never ending 
uh, attempt to stop me from doing stuff. And it made me all the more wild. Like I went to Europe, I took a year off from college and I went all the way to Europe for four months. It was quite amazing. Wow. Uh, and it was before there were smartphones. So I'm like pretty much all, all on my own with no contact from anyone unless I wanted it. But I remember she was crying at the airport, seeing me off. And later she told me, I thought for sure I would never see you again. Like, you know, she like, that's not a normal reaction. Uh, and well, most it is. Her, given yeah. her circumstances, yeah, yeah. it absolutely was normal. Yeah, I know. But so most mothers would be like, wow, I wish I could go with you. But she was like, I'll never see you again. She didn't tell me that until I got home, but I could tell she was not too happy. And, you know, so she didn't stop me, but she certainly was uh, inhibited me. Like she took some of the fun out of it because there's no fun making your mother cry, you could say. And so, and yeah, then, I, exactly. You know, but I would be pretty wild and I wanted to go to Europe because they were from Europe also, you know, so I went all over the place. I went to Greece, to Israel, all over France and England and uh, Italy. But uh, I knew I would wow. never have so much of a long length of time like that again, probably. Right, right. I'm imagining your your mother's response to you leaving and um, yeah. the, the loss of her family and how hard it was to let you go. Yeah. Yeah. And she 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 had to. I mean, she didn't have much of a choice. Once yeah. you decided you were going to go, you were going to go. Yeah. Did you um did you even at that time when you think back on that, you knew that she was reacting because of her tragedy. Um I guess I partly yeah, I didn't always th I didn't always connect it. I mean, pretty much. I knew she was overprotective. I knew it was from her background. I didn't always connect it exactly. I just knew of course, she's not too happy about this, but I've always, it's not about her. I want to do this. I want to do all kinds right. of things in my life. I was very ambitious. I, I really wanted to have a broad perspective. Uh, I think being a child of European parents gives you a broad perspective in the first place. You're, yes. you're very sensitive to any, anytime I see someone struggling with English, first of all, uh, you know, I react, I, I feel for them because I know my own parents, they imagine coming to America, not only with their family lost, but not speaking English. And boy, that was a struggle for both yeah. of my parents, but they both managed to finish their education in America and they got their degrees and it's quite amazing. It is. I keep coming back to this whole idea that we have to, we have to look back because we don't know at the time what's going yeah. on. We have to yeah. be able to look back and see why our parents or any anyone in our lives behaved the way they did yeah. so that we can retell the story a little differently yeah. um, you know, uh, with mm -hmm. that context in mind. Yeah. I think it's yeah. so important to have the context of what happened to them when we start telling stories about them and our relationships. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Huh. And so really whenever, so, so I'm always very quick to, if I see someone struggling, I have quite a lot of empathy for, you could say the little guy, but it's usually like if I'm at NYU, I feel for the people that don't speak good English, but they have to keep up and I'm, I'm more going to help them than anyone else. And I've actually, I was thinking, getting, thinking about our interview today, uh, over the years, I've helped a number of people that were in trouble and usually in trouble because they were being bullied one way or another by Americans because they were foreign born. So I actually have a few cases. I was thinking about them uh, to mention to you that where someone was going to be beaten up or someone thought they were having a heart attack, but no one wanted to help them because they looked poor. Or one time I saw a guy being bullied 
uh, he was selling tickets to the ferry that goes from New Jersey to Manhattan. So he's in this little box and it was really cold in the winter. So these, these dumb guys, they're bullying the crap out of this poor guy because they can, like he's trapped in this box, you know, he's in this little ticket booth. So they're like right. saying all this stuff at him. I think he was from India. So the guy tried to have too much bravado. He got out of the, of the box. So now these guys are really going to really hurt him or worse. So I, I came over and defended them and him. And I said, I'm calling 911 right now. Here's my phone. If you stick around, you'll be arrested. Uh, and they threatened me also, but they ran away. But I I've done a few of those things. Um, I do have a little of a, you know, you like to save someone. I wish I could have saved my mother from the camp, I think is a part of my psyche, really. So the idea of saving someone uh, is a part of me. In fact, my my wife, I think, used to call me 911 man, because I'm not going to go fight these guys if I can help it. But I will call the police and uh, I'll call 911 and I'll solve the situation if I can. But I've done that a number of times. Uh, it, usually it's someone foreign, like once, but this idea of wanting to save people because I couldn't save my mother. Uh, one time a guy was a really sharp mechanic and I went to get my car repaired at this place and the other guys are bullying him, the other mechanics, uh, because he was Hispanic, not born in America. And mechanics are really smart. Like anyone who makes fun of them, you try fixing the car instead. You know, exactly. You're not smart about it. This guy is. Right. So I really defended this guy. Really, it was in front of a lot of people. And but the boss was picking on him. And I made quite a thing about it. And I complained to the boss's boss. But I felt good about doing it. But uh, anyway, I thinking back, I've done that kind of thing a number of times. Uh, sometimes a little bit taking a risk of my own physical safety, but I'm, you know, pretty careful, you know? Yeah. Um, that totally makes sense. That idea of wanting to be the person for others that you wished you could have been for your mother. Yeah. 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 Wow. And you mentioned earlier that, uh, or in a, an email conversation that your dad was the opposite. He just didn't trust anyone and he yeah. discouraged you guys from trusting anyone. Yeah. Um, so where is that showing up in your life? Like yeah. Well, that, I mean, I had to overcome what my, in one, it's a double-edged sword because I like knowing what's going on. So on one hand, I'm glad he told me all the things he told me, but on the other hand, you could say he didn't have boundaries. And he, even as I was a little kid, maybe literally like three years old, he's telling me some nice colorful Nazi stories. And they're really pretty horrible stories. Like he's telling me that he saw firsthand the Nazis were offering that if you tell them, if the Polish people give up, where is a Jewish baby being hidden? They will take them and kill them. And But if you are the one who tells them where it is, they'll give you literally like a five pound bag of sugar. So what could be really more disgusting? It's even a cognitive dissonance, like a nice, a nice right. bag of sugar for a baby that we're going to kill is quite disgusting. And it made such an impression on me and partly because I was so unbelievably young, like he never should have told me that at that age, not at three but, years old, but he really had no filter. It's a funny thing. He, he was an engineer and he thought I'm doing this to help my son. So he knows that the world is this way and he was right. And yet wrong, you know, so on one, right, hand, of course, I mean, so it messed me up in some ways, I'm sure, because he's teaching me. And another thing like that, he taught us don't smile at anyone because smiling is phony. This was his, his great advice. So having the ability to smile is what maybe the key 
feature of anyone being successful in anything, pretty much, you know, uh, not only as a salesman, but a teacher, but anyone like a politician, think right. of anyone, a coach, uh, somebody uh, that needs to be approachable. Yeah. So he taught us don't smile at anyone because see all the neighbors, look how silly they are. They're smiling and, and saying good morning. This is on Staten Island growing up uh, in Poland. When you smile at your neighbors, the next thing they, you know, they turn you into the Nazis. So he's also like, I'm a little tiny kid. The neighbors say good morning and smile. He then he tells me this, like, I'm it's really like he wasn't he wasn't overly cut out to be a father. He was a, he had an engineering mind. But on the other hand, I really like knowing what reality is about. And right. I like but he was trying to protect you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the only thought behind it. But there yeah. was nothing yeah. else behind it. I yeah, love absolutely. this human and yeah. I want this human to stay safe. I, I'm protecting yeah. this human by doing what I'm doing. So yeah. where do you think that's showing up now? I mean, you said you mentioned that even now you you have to really be intentional about smiling. Yeah, I think I smile all the time, when, but but not on purpose. But I can't be in a picture unless my dog is with me. I'll say, wait a minute, let me get my dog here, here, maybe <laughs> here, jump on my lap, and that's that's how I'm comfortable taking a picture. Then even smile. then, even then, it's an effort because I really can't smile intentionally to this day, and that's that's. Wow. The, but yet he had an engineering point of view. He's like, if I tell him this fact, he will learn this fact. So and then like, he'll be I, safe. Yeah. So like when 9-11 happened, we were at work at the Prudential and we watched the replay on the TV. We all went into this big war room that like they call right. it. So we're all watching on a big screen, the beautiful, clear, sunny day. It couldn't have been a clearer day. This jumbo jet smashes into the middle of the World Trade Center. And I knew immediately it's a terrorist, but I was surprised. Some of the people in the room, they're like, oh, look at that. It was an accident. I wonder how that happened. But it was an accidentally that happened. Like, I don't know. They were going too fast. Like so, some people. Oh, total they, they denial. They, they were in total denial. But it was unbelievably 110% obvious to me from my background. I might, you know, it's like pretty obvious in general. But then even the second plane hit the second tower and people are in denial. But even even just the first one, it was couldn't have been more obvious to me and many people that it was terrorism. But that's like my father would have been happy that I recognized things like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm very fast. Bittersweet. Well, yeah, like I recognize... Yeah politicians when they're phony. And I, I have a pretty good eye for that mm -hmm. from from what he taught me. And I like being very analytical. But anyway, nevertheless, if I could undo that early teaching, I would because that's not a way right. to teach a little kid. Well, it sounds like you really um, took a lot from each of your parents. Yeah. That, and, and as an adult now, you're able to see those gifts for what yeah. they are. You know, uh, yeah, but as a kid, not so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I teach adults and I, I have a lot of, I guess, both of them in me, like a lot of my father's analytical ability. But I, I often think that I have a lot of my mother's empathy. Like some people are extremely surprised in the class. How did you know I knew the answer? I can just tell in people's eyes. They have the answer. I can see which answer they have. It comes natural to me. It's, I think it's mainly from my mother. Plus, I've been teaching a lot. But I can really pretty well tell what people are up to in the class just by seeing their face. And uh, that. And not every teacher has that. So uh, I'm happy that I have it. And I, I like using that as an ability, you know. So it sounds like your dad was um, an observer of human behavior yeah. as opposed to an absorber of human emotion. <laughs> So yeah. it seems like 
you are actually exhibiting a, a strong, a, a, an extraordinary combination of both of those. Yeah, I have I have noticed that about myself for a long time. I think you know I always used to think of it, you know, pretty much like that. But even more, I get older, uh, the more I see it. I think I think you're right. Yeah, because many times uh, somebody who can experience empathy doesn't necessarily observe on that level without absorbing the emotion that's coming out. And it sounds to me like when you described being able to know that a person has an answer and a right or wrong answer without them ever saying anything, that sounds to me like... like I said, an extraordinary combination of both of those. Yeah, yeah, it is a bit of a superpower. Like I, I've been told it a million times as a teacher. Like my students, I'm very. Mm-hmm. My students like me. They get. They got Mavis a dog bed. They. My students. They <laughs> like to get me little things because they and they like once in a while we share pictures like like Friday photos day and stuff like that. But anyway, yeah. I, I also I have very good memories, so I'll remember. It partly helps that I know a lot of. I remember each student what they've said in the past, so I. Mm-hmm. I have all that. And then I see their face, but, uh, and again, yeah, I mean, and again, you're talking about, um, aspects of your father's personality there that, um, the app, you're absolutely compelled to remember these details about people. Yeah. Um, and not necessarily in the cynical way your father was. Yeah. So it's fascinating to, I'm just like, my brain is just flying through these ideas right now about where these are coming from. That's that's pretty amazing. Well, in other words, yeah, it's it's a good skill to have to be a really good teacher and to write good books. So I luckily am born with it partly, but I also cultivated it and developed it. Uh, and it does Absolutely. come from his ability also. But yes, yeah, so the more the more a teacher does those things, the better. Uh, and so yeah, but yeah, another and another related thing from my father, he also taught us, you know try to never ever make a mistake and this is another double-edged sword because he wants to go around pretty afraid of making mistakes but on the other hand it makes you really good and you know prepare really well and super careful to be accurate but i would say he overdid that as well you know but like right and but he used another another here's another fun horrific anecdote from my father that he told me as a little kid he said there was one more first-hand case that he knew about uh, Polish Jewish people hiding in their house from the Nazis, very much like you could think of the Anne Frank picture, like Anne Frank right. is in her little house hiding for years. So right. there was this family that he knew, they were hiding, probably five people in a house. And uh, the one kid, very little kid, you know, how long can a little kid stay still? So the little kid was playing with the ball and he threw it. The ball went out the window, someone saw it, reported them to the Nazis. And the next thing you know, they're all carried away. So he's, he's telling me this story. You know, it's not just a story. And he's trying to give me the lesson, be super careful, never make a mistake, even a little throw a ball out the window. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, (laughs) make sure it doesn't go out the window. I know. Yeah. Or or you'll get killed by the Nazis. And and thanks a lot. So, so it sticks with you. It's, it's really good and bad, more bad, you could say, but but anyway, that was my experience, uh, having to deal with that Uh, kind of thing, you know? And then in combination with your mother being hyper, um, vigilant about damage, pain, discomfort, um, add those on top of it. Wow. It's kind of amazing. Turned out. Okay, Jeff. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, thank you. You know, by the way, you said something really interesting about you said a baby that's 
while the mother's pregnant during like uh, Hurricane Sandy, uh-huh. uh, it affects the baby in utero, right? So it I absolutely does. I recently heard something like that that even the DNA can change. Did you ever hear that? I met yes. a woman. I was walking my dog. Maybe you know more about it. Uh, you could tell more. Like so, we meet this woman. Typically, Mavis gets love bombed everywhere we go. Everyone wants to meet her. So we we met this woman, and she's telling me she's a PhD in that exact field, like studying. People think your gene, your genes are your genes, but she said actually your genes can change from any circumstances, and even even when you're already born, even after you're born, your genetics can still change. And I was very surprised to hear that, but uh, but that's what she so studies. That's her specialty. For our, for our listeners, if you're yeah. curious about this, you may want to look up the episode that I had with uh, Rajkumari Niyogi. Um, she's amazing human and brain science. Um, geek, just like my friend Melissa Hughes. Well, not just like, but they are both neuroscience geeks. Um, But what she talked about was epigenetics, which is what you're Mm. talking about, where for our listeners, look it up epigenetics. There are certain genes that are hardwired into us and all our epigenetic genes are like that next layer up from there. And they're hardwired into us, but they have a switch on them that can be turned on or off. So there, mm. as I said, there are hardwired genetics, like mm. I'm going to be a brunette with brown eyes um, and this is going to be my skin tone. I can't change the genes around that after I'm born, but mm. there are certain genes that are kind of latent or not activated. Mm. Mm. Um, that, that there's a switch basically. And unfortunately we don't always know what turns on or off those genetic predispositions. Yeah. Um, but it is a fascinating study and what they're finding is that even grandchildren of Holocaust victims mm-hmm. that never knew their grandparents, grandchildren of Native Americans that were abused and, and had tragedies around them that never met those grandparents, they demonstrate, actively demonstrate um, symptoms of PTSD. Mm-hmm. And it's just fascinating. So for you, you know, this, this direct recognition is you are who you are because of your experiences with your parents. Genetics play a role in it, but it's you directly experience their trauma because they told you about it. But um, do you have any kids or nieces or nephews that? Uh, Yeah. Well, I have, I have a lot of nieces and nephews. My wife and I don't have children, but uh, I guess I see some of it in one of my nieces more than others. Uh, you can tell, I actually can tell sometimes someone is a Holocaust child of, you know, child of a Holocaust survivor. Right. Uh, I, I had a girlfriend for a couple of years that I actually guessed this about her and she was pretty surprised. A funny thing, we were at this beautiful beach, Fire Island. Have you ever been? It's off the coast of yeah. uh, Long Island. Fantastic beach, little deer running around. Lovely. But she, very beautiful beach. I think it's the nicest beaches in the whole New York City area. But anyway, uh, we were on an early date and the waves were really big this one day, beautiful big waves. And she wants to go in, but she doesn't exactly go in. She says, I'm gonna go in, but then she goes, stands in the water, doesn't go in. It just made me, I could somehow pick up this fear that she had, even though she was a very brave person, she had a great career, very smart. So she's brave, but scared. I guess I am that way too. I guess, I mean, we all are a little bit like that, but I could, right. I, I said, were you, I, was your mother or father by any chance in the Holocaust? She says, that's pretty good. How did you guess that? And, uh-huh. and I, I, I just picked picked it up 
And furthermore, that's partly what I was drawn to about her in the first place, I guess, is that we had this common commonality. But anyway, shared uh, history. Yeah, but she never, she didn't tell me, and I hadn't met the parents. It just was a, I could just pick up this sort of funny hesitation, like beautiful sunny day. Mm -hmm. Why aren't you going in the water anyway? Uh, and and you just we all, knew. Yeah, but she yeah, did. Yeah, you swim. recognized it. Yeah, yeah. She did swim. Yeah, she Good. swam a lot, uh, and she was pretty bold uh, in, about swimming. Uh, so we went to Hawaii. But anyway, but that day I, <laughs> I, I could figure that out just sort of intuitively, which I think is a quality my mother has. Uh, my mother was more able to guess things about, than my father. Well, let's go back, though. Yeah. Let's combine okay. those two things. Okay. Um, as much as you could sense and... and um, empathize with her emotion the fear yeah. you could feel her fear yeah yeah i would really urge you to consider that your observation of her behavior was also part of how you knew which comes from your dad yeah it was like how do i how did i know was it intuitive or was it analytical i i'll never know exactly a combination yeah. I, I would be willing to bet that it's a combination of the two yeah. And, and yeah. because of how you're raised and as a middle child i think we do have more of a tendency mm. to absorb observe our parents and their um their interesting dynamics between them yeah so yeah, yeah. uh I know a lot of middle children like you, like me, like a few of my other friends who are far more aware of the dynamics in the relationships of their parents than their siblings were. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true, too. My brothers will say uh, they won't remember something, so they'll ask me. And I'll say, oh, yeah, I remember all the stuff about my father, like, you know, from very young. Like, uh, I think you're right about that. Uh, by the way, you know, thinking that we were going to talk today, you got me thinking more about stories than ever. Like, I don't think of myself as a as a raconteur, but I, I actually use story a lot in my teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if you've ever taught teachers how to use story, because that's a concept you know, the more you use stories, like I teach from this, this is this book that I teach from. I'm not holding up my own book as a plug. I'm holding up <laughs> yeah, this gigantic book. It's 800 wow. pages. Oh, so it's huge. You oh, have to know PMP all of this. Exam. Yeah, yeah. So, so for our listeners, they can't see us. He's holding up a oh. giant book called the PMP exam. And it looks like it's a study guide. Yeah, it's a really good book by someone named Andy Crow. But it, so and literally, it's like, it's like, uh, it's 823 pages. So if you teach just 823 pages, it's going to be pretty boring, uh, and hard to get people engaged and learning. But one of the things, the nice thing about NYU is they give us lots of free training. So some of the NYU training is about using stories in your classes. They teach us all kinds of good stuff uh, for free. They taught, they gave us Zoom classes when the pandemic started. So I got maybe six or seven free Zoom classes because I, I kept, I was actually going into the city like a nut, risking getting sick at the early in the pandemic. Because I oh. suddenly you have to teach by Zoom, and I'm like, oh crap, I better get really good at it. So I went in. And <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, so one of the skills they teach us at NYU in particular is using stories. I don't have to tell you, uh, but the more you use stories, it's good as it, many teachers don't do it, though, or they tell stories right. about their own. Like, you know, I like the I like the Jets or, you know, meaningless stories, which is just sort of right. fun as an icebreaker. But the more you can craft really good stories, it makes you a better teacher. People learn from from the story. And Absolutely. it also. 
And then you give space for them to share their stories, which also reinforces their learning, as you know. But anyway, stories and teaching, not everyone connects the two. Well, absolutely. And I have had conversations with teachers. Um, a lot of my workshops and keynotes, there yeah. are teachers that attend. Yeah, I yeah. haven't specifically yeah. um, looked into that as a as another area of, yeah. of teaching another topic or specific audience. So I will consider that. Thank you. Well, I, could, I could tell I you it would be great at it. It could even be a book because a lot of teachers neglect that that piece. Uh, well, I think might... a lot of people neglect that piece yeah, yeah, and yeah. everyone teaches in one way or another, just by modeling the behavior and, and simply through their words. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's definitely, definitely something <laughs> to consider. Jeff, um, I would like to come back and, and kind of go full circle back to your yeah. love of music and your stories around the folk singers yeah. And hear one more little bit about this, because I think it'll bring us full circle before we hit end on the recording. Well, when you think about the music and you think about the American folk music and any particular songwriters that really resonated with you, do you ever associate those songs and those those particular people and their life experiences with what you've gone through and what your parents went through? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, it's funny, I, I was just thinking of you for today, so I was remembering when people hear the Holocaust, they think of the Nazi Holocaust, but there has been more than one, right? And uh, so some countries are jealous. Uh, why does everyone talk about the Jewish Holocaust? What about the Armenian genocide? And what about the Native American genocide? I have and always the Rwandan been, genocide. Yeah, I've always been super aware of that also. I know Jewish people who only are single-minded, only us are the victims of, of something ever, you know, but really, mm -hmm. I think since I was very young, I was aware of this. So actually, this is a good example um, from your question. One of the songwriters I interviewed, his name was Tom Russell. And he's a really good songwriter. And I interviewed him for, it was called uh, Songwriter Magazine, which I did a few articles for them. So just kind of randomly, he told me about, yeah, the, yeah, so when you interview songwriters, they send you a few CDs, you know? So I'm looking through the CDs. I find this amazing song called Manzanar. Uh, most people never heard of it. It's M-A-N-Z-I-N-A-R. So... Uh, did you know that this was a place where we know that they interred some of the Japanese Americans in, in concentration camps, right, in our fine country, right? But we did this pretty not so nice thing. At least we hopefully treated them okay in there. But anyway, he, Tom Russell, wrote this great song called Manzanar, which is, which, um, which is about, actually, it means apple blossoms. Uh, apple orchards, I think, is what the word means. And he wrote this song about how all about this, the experience of a Japanese American who suddenly was pulled into this camp. Like he came to them to America for the riches that America offered. And then world war two, you know, Pearl Harbor started. And then he right. was suddenly he's treated like crap and even worse, he's thrown into a concentration camp. Uh, not as bad as the German ones, but not so great either. You know, imagine right. <laughs> totally uprooting your life and your family. But anyway, that was an interesting blend because I focused on that song. I could have asked him about any of his songs, but I picked that one to talk about. Uh, and uh, that was quite a great conversation. And we talked about the German Holocaust also, because uh, since we're talking about Holocaust, let's talk, you know, I, I actually said to him, did you ever write a song about the German Holocaust? 
which he hadn't at the time. But it's a beautiful song called Manzanar, and uh, you could you could Google it. I actually found it today. If you Google Manzanar and Tom Russell, you'll find several other artists have also covered that song. Huh. Well, I will definitely look that up. And just for our listeners, um, I will put a. I'll, I'll see if I can embed the YouTube of Manzanar in yeah. the blog post associated with the podcast. So people can listen to it as they're yeah. reading through some of the notes. Um, and Jeff, if our uh, listeners are interested in following up with you with learning more about PMP or yeah. about your stories and your books, what's the best way for them to do that? And before I, I have you rattle them off for our okay. listeners that mm-hmm. are not next yeah. to a piece of paper and a pen or an ability to type something in, I will also have these links and all this information in the blog post at elkinsconsulting.com. So Jeff, where do we find you? Yeah, thank you so much. So very simple. I have a website called jeff-ferman.com. On the website, you'll see I offer private PMP classes. I do coaching. I do tutoring. Uh, I primarily teach now for the U.S. Army. Uh, it's I love doing it, and it's a 10-day very intense, intensive class for the army, but I do private classes also. And I wrote two books. One was called the project management answer book. And I had a first and second edition and it's a popular book. Uh, I, a lot of people have read it from different countries. They click like on Facebook from all, all over the world. And then I uh-huh. recently, uh, the PMP test recently changed. So I wrote a little quick workbook and that's on Amazon Kindle. It's just a quick, it's really like a book of lists, but it's like, there's a lot of vocabulary to learn to pass the test. Oh. And I put together this pretty cool thing. It's like an education psychology thing. Uh, I teach a method sometimes of as an activity learning in pairs. So there are a lot of words that you have to learn. But if you can associate them in pairs, it helps you really drill down and really learn them. So that's my newest book that's uh, that's on Kindle, and that's called Boost Your PMP Score, Learn the Keywords in Sets. Very cool. Very cool. And yes, natural teacher. I'm so <laughs> glad that I finally had the opportunity to visit with you after all these years of being connected on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for taking this time. Thank you too, Sarah. It's been really great. And I'll see you soon on the internet. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Are you ready to start your story portfolio? So you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself. When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, is available in all the regular places. And the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change, in my living room in Montana. Also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review. And let me know that you've done it so I can thank you properly. Thank you.